Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi everyone, it's Siobhan. Are you ready to break up with sugar once and for all? Are you ready to get off of the sugar roller coaster and start on your own path to freedom? Well, if you are, join me in my group coaching program set to kick off on Sunday, May 2nd. It was going to be six weeks, but I decided to add in a bonus week. So it'll be seven weeks starting Sunday, May 2nd, and will include weekly Zoom sessions, a private Facebook group for daily support and to get your questions answered, accountability buddies to stay in, with, stay in touch with throughout the day, plus weekly discussion topics and homework. We're also including a VIP option, which will include four 45-minute one-on-one coaching sessions with me, which will also include the emotion code and the body code. If you or someone you know might be interested, please go to my website, www.unsweetensio.com and click on work with me and then click on the group coaching tab and it will have all the details and you can sign up right there. As always, feel free to reach out to me with any questions, but I would love to have you start to live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 96 of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. Super, super excited to have the very dynamic husband-wife powerhouse team of Dr. David and Dr. Jen Unwin today. Dr. David works at the Norwood NH Surgery in Southport near Liverpool, UK, where he has cared for the same population since 1986 as a family doctor. To date, 96 out of 188 of his patients with type 2 diabetes have achieved drug-free remission. This gives a remission rate of 49% at 30 months duration of a lower carb diet, one of the best results for any clinic in the world. For the past few years, he has been a UK Royal College of General Practitioners expert clinical advisor on diabetes. As a result of his interest in both better communication with patients and type 2 diabetes, he was made Royal College of General Practice National Champion for Collaborative Care and Support Planning in Obesity and Diabetes in 2015. In 2016, he was the proud UK national winner of the NHS Innovator of the Year Award for published research into lifestyle changes, working with patients' personal health goals as an alternative to drug therapy and type 2 diabetes so that his GP practice spends 50,000 pounds per year less than expected on drugs for diabetes. As part of this, he has also published research into improving blood pressure, lipid profiles, and liver function by reducing dietary carbohydrate, especially sugar. In 2019, he was shortlisted by NICE for a prize for his teaspoon of sugar infographics, which have now been translated into 14 languages including Malaysian. Dr. Unwin's work has been covered by both BBC, C4, and C5 television, The New Scientist, The Times, The Daily Mail, and The British Medical Journal. Further recognition came recently when David was invited to become an ambassador for the UK all-party parliamentary group on diabetes. You can follow him at Low Carb GP on Twitter. And Dr. Jen Unwin is a consultant clinical health psychologist, past chair of the UK Association for Solution-Focused Practice, winner of the British Psychology Society Karen Eller Lifetime Achievement Award in Clinical Health Psychology. Dr. Jen Unwin has spent her professional life interested in the role of hope in chronic disease and how it can be used to bring about behavior change. Her insights teamed up perfectly with Dr. David's interest in bringing about drug-free type 2 diabetes remission. For six years, they have been running group sessions in primary care to achieve just that, so far for 93 patients. This combination has also worked online 
450,000 people have done the low carb program they helped diabetes.co.uk design. Both doctors were featured in a BBC TV documentary, The Truth About Carbs, that was seen by 3.7 million viewers. And Jen has recently written a book, which is now available on Amazon, called A Fork in the Road to Help People with Food Addiction. This is why I call you to a powerhouse couple. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming back and welcome, David. Hello, welcome, hello. You're welcome. Well, gosh, that, that nearly took up the whole show. Yeah. <laughs> you can all go home now. Everybody knows everything now. <laughs> But I just think it's so amazing, all these accomplishments. I really, sometimes I shorten the bio, but I didn't want to this time. I wanted to read everything because really what you have both done is just amazing. I, th I think I'd just draw every, we, we didn't achieve anything really at all until 2012. So we were sleeping uh, um, <laughs> decades of our professional career. And I think what is surprising is how we've woken up both of us at the end of our careers and we've really become fascinated by how you are effective in helping patients and we're having a lot more fun than ever we expected <laughs> yeah that's uh, true. in both of our careers we're really in, enjoying being effective yeah it's a bit about nine years now actually since we started the first low carb group in david's practice so we we live in Southport, it's a little town north of Liverpool in the UK, uh, but we both had completely separate jobs. So I've been a, a clinical psychologist working in hospitals for most of my career, helping people with chronic pain and other chronic conditions. And David had obviously been a GP. We'd, ne we'd never worked together as such, um, although we quite liked the idea, didn't we? Because, uh, you know, we recognised that a lot of the conditions that people would consult David for weren't to be solved by drugs. <laughs> they were to be solved by, by lifestyle change. And of course, that's, that's what psychologists uh, know about. So we, we talked a lot about psychology and yeah. how you might incorporate that into clinical practice. And David learned quite a lot about this solution-focused idea that, that, um, that I use. So he was already using some of that, weren't you? I've been using psychological the, the the power of hope particularly it's for about 10 years mm. uh, because jen had taught me that it's so much better to find out what patients and people are hoping for and help them achieve it than it is to scare them i think i'd spent a lot of my career frightening people with what would happen with high blood pressure and diabetes and how you die in agony and so on and that of course frightens people and some of them go away and never come back and I, I'd, I'd, I'd conned on to that it's just much more cheerful form of medicine if you can find out what people's hopes are and then help them achieve those hopes. One bit of background I think um, would be to explain the epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes that my practice faced. So as a young man when I started there were 57 people in the practice. The practice is nine and a half thousand people. And when I started in 1986, there were 57 with type two diabetes. By 2012, we'd had an eight or nine fold increase in the number of people with diabetes. So we had 470 people, but we didn't have any money or any extra resources to help an eight fold epidemic of, of sick people. Mm. And it brings, it, I was worrying and thinking about, well, why has this epidemic happened? It's not an infection and it can't be genetic in one generation. So I was a bit depressed and puzzling really over why my patients were so sick, why they were getting so heavy. And things, the obesity and type 2 diabetes was happening in younger and younger people. The, the waiting room now the people in it look completely different than they did in 1986. They're much heavier and on the whole, they're younger. Uh, so that was the rather depressing start <laughs> in, 20, uh, in 2012. Plus, um, yes, yeah, so, so, so David was a bit fed up with it all at that time. And also looking back, we didn't really realise at the time, but actually he was 
slipping into type two diabetes himself. He was, his blood pressure was going up and he was having a little, having a little, felt sleepy after meals, you know, some of the kind of early, early warning signs of metabolic problems really. And I was thinking about retirement. So we had a chat about, well, you know, would it be interesting, you know, it'd be nice to do a project together before you retire. What, what would, what's something that would maybe be fun that would sort of, you know, get you interested in it, in it all again. And that's how we struck on. Uh, and we'd all, I also personally just to come across low carb in a book called Escape the Diet Trap by Dr. John Briffer, who's a UK GP, who was um, using low carb at the time. So he was a really early pioneer of it. And I'd read his book and um, I'd, I'd adopted it myself. And I'd, Kind of, kind of felt amazing as you do when you're uh, sugar addict and you first you first get onto a good low carb or keto plan. You know, I I felt amazing and I kept pestering David and telling him all bits from this book, and so this idea formed um, from David's kind of worry about his overweight diabetic patients and this this book that I was reading and that we might work together and that also I love doing group work and that's not something that GPs ever ever do because they you know, they're not trained to do it. Um, but I could see how you could do that in, in general practice. And so we just we just did it in the in the evenings. We just invited everybody who was on the diabetic register. You know, we just said, you know, who's up? Who's up to try something different? Well, really, a lot of it was um, necessity being the mother of invention. But the, the problem was the partnership that as doctors, we weren't really paid to do a better job. And in fact, my partners didn't like me doing low carb work because they felt I ought to see sick people. And they said, we're not being financed for this. So it was Jen's idea that we would work in the evening for free when the practice wasn't being used anyway. So I could say to the partners, well, if I could just use the premises, I'll staff it for free. Jen staffed it. And we had a wonderful nurse who just wanted to enjoy being a nurse and believe in what she did called Heather. And she came for free and we started, we were forced to explore doing it cheaply in groups so that we were seeing the patients in tranches of 20 on a Monday night. And I was scared really because I was just used to seeing patients one-to-one and I didn't really have the confidence for groups. But Jen had been doing that for years and she said, come on, it'll be uh, It'll be fine. I'll hold your hand. <laughs> and we've never, we're still doing those groups. There's one tomorrow night. So that's all the way from, we started about January 2013. And here we are. Yeah, uh, on in, Zoom now. On Zoom tomorrow. And some people have hardly missed a group in all those years. Yeah. So they must feel it's, yeah. uh, it, they must feel it's, it's useful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important that that ongoing support you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you do as well, that, um, you know, that's, that's not so well recognised, really, that it, it's okay to give people advice and people can make amazing changes. But really, in the culture that we live in, um, you need that ongoing contact with people, even if it's really light touch with that, those people, we just see them once a month, about an hour and a half, Thursday night. And um, it's just that regular sort of talking about it and being in, in a group of people doing the same thing. Um, I think is massively, massively important. Um, yeah, so that, that's been a big part of it, really. I think partly, I, just to come back to hope, I find that if, if patients join the group and they see somebody they can identify with and they hear a story and, they, and, and, and somebody says, well, this is how I was and I used to weigh this much, and they think that's like me. And they can, so we have patient experts now who are happy to help with newbies so that group uh, the group dynamics are endlessly fascinating in motivating sh- showcasing hope but also support and ideas and it, it's really f- interesting it didn't feel like work it it didn't it wasn't like exhausting as a surgery is because some of the work was being done by the patients when yeah. I like I just learned to trust them and and um, they didn't take advantage and they were genuinely there trying to help. When I love the message of hope, that's one thing I've always loved about you, Jen, is that the power of hope and that message. And I think it's so interesting, David, you talking about how 
you know, you kind of probably got depressed after a while of, you know, treating sick people and not really being able to help them trying things that weren't working and then really making that powerful shift to one of hope and providing people, you're empowering people basically to help themselves. And that's something that is such a gift to people when they learn, I don't need to go, I can do this on my own with the support, you know, but it's so empowering, I think, for people to be able to be given those tools and really just the information and knowledge that you're giving people. I agree. Well, I wish I'd worked that out when when I was younger. So I spent years and years telling people what was best for them. And then I was annoyed um, when it didn't work. So I blamed the patients for decades for not losing weight and not doing the sensible things. And I sort of gave up. And gradually, I think the paradigm of medicine changed over the years as we began to medicate more and more. We were using drugs. Uh, without really thinking about what is the actual cause of disease. An example is antidepressants, which they can be very useful. But people are depressed sometimes for reasons. Many of my patients have financial problems or they're in uh, abusive relationships or so on. And antidepressants don't solve some of the terrible problems that people have. And yet I was just I was, there was a, you know, there were drugs for diabetes and drugs for depression and drugs for chronic pain. And I wasn't really thinking about why is this patient ill or why, you know, why is it? And I, I think I'm, I'm now much more in touch with um, why are people heavy? Why are they uh, eating foods they'd be better off not to eat? Um, and... The other thing I've discovered is if you give people a chance, they're quite interested in avoiding medication. I used to think that um, people were lazy, but then again, I never asked them. I never said to them, uh, right, we could start this lifelong medication today, or you and I can work together on a lifestyle solution and then you won't need the drugs. I never said that once, but I have said it since 2012 and not a single patient has turned me down when I say you know changing your life could mean that you don't need drugs and I find and it's not a matter of education or background people everywhere are very interested in being properly well mm. and not relying on medications so and some people don't even realize like you're saying that that was that's even an option you know, they're just so used to going to the doctor and being given a pill that they don't even realize that there's something other option. And I just really appreciate your honesty, David, on just saying how, because I think that's how most medical doctors are and how, you know, you were before of just really maybe not seeing the underlying lying cause or really even wanting to get to the root cause, you know, just kind of giving a drug here and there and I love that you've made that shift. And I think the dynamic of you as being the general practitioner and Jen being, you know, the psychologist, that powerful combo together. Um, I think there's no other way that this could have been born the way it was. And even to go through all those previous years, you know, kind of doing what you did all led you to 2012 and making this huge shift. So I think it all happened exactly the way that it needed to happen. And um, most doctors don't, wouldn't know, they don't know how to have those conversations because they're not trained to do it. And people worry in a way, quite rightly, about opening up a can of worms. Uh, they've got 10 minutes, you know, David has 10 minutes for some really complicated consultations and um, you, you get, you get quick at that, don't you? You have ways which you do it in a very sort of routine way. And, um, and I, I think doctors find it really hard to, to, to make that shift because they're, they're scared of this can of worms, which they then can't, <laughs> they can't kind of, uh, pack away again in, in 10 minutes, or they uncover something that's even more complicated. So that's what's, um, really good about the, the model that we use, which is a very positive model. Um, which is about people's hopes and, and goals and what's already working and what some small next steps might be and what, what, you know, what they're hoping to notice. And, we, and using those kinds of questions that 
just keep the whole conversation going in a very forward direction towards what what better health would look like for them um, and because it's um, tailored to their own best hopes and their own wishes it's very patient focused so um, we, we, are, we do try and sort of where, where we asked to as well sort of try and train other healthcare professionals to use that sort of model so that they then have a framework because even when they believe in low carb or kind of um, keto diets, um, they often find it quite hard to <laughs> tailor the, the consultation to, to how people can implement them or to how to support them to do it. So it, it does help to have that combination. You need that psychology of the, the psychology and the physiology and the doctor together to, to make it work really. I'd like to give an example. So I was mentoring uh, a young doctor just this morning and she said to me I really struggle to help people with weight because I don't I don't want the person to feel I'm being critical of them so I tend not to bring up obesity at all because I'm I, I worry that they'll think I'm fat shaming and I, I just don't know how to even begin the conversation and and I said well all it's ever so simple you just say to somebody, are you interested in, in some information about how to lose weight? But the important thing is you wait for them to give permission and say they are. You don't start telling them straight away. You must wait. But I find that if you say to somebody, uh, are you interested in, in losing weight? Because if you are, I'd, I'm interested in giving you some support and some ideas how you can achieve that. I've only had one patient turn me down in all these years, just one person who happened to be addicted to chocolate, as it happens. And she said, I'm not giving up the chocolate for you, Dr. Omin, or anybody else. <laughs> but all, all of the others have said, yes, I'm interested. And then another key thing that Jen has taught me is never accept that somebody wants to lose weight. Always find out, ask them, what difference, if you could lose weight, what difference to your life would it make? because that's a quick way into their lives and their hopes. And you get such marvelous stories from people. Uh, Jen and I always ask them and we've, yeah. we've got people who want to wear fashionable clothing or they want to breathe better or play with their grandchildren. And then you're getting a glimpse of their real lives. And before you know where you are- Because lo losing yeah. weight in itself doesn't, it doesn't necessarily change your life, does it? It's, it's what, what what consequences that has or what, what what does that then lead to which makes a difference in somebody's life or what would they be doing differently if they did manage to lose a significant amount of weight what what what, what would other people notice about them or what would, yeah what would they be doing differently that's the that's the important thing is what what different life do you want how would they be feeling in these new bodies I love yeah. it. what would you be doing what would other people notice about you it's not the, the, it's not pure it's not just the fact that you're kind of in a smaller pair of jeans you know because your life might be exactly the same or you might feel exactly the same actually it's it's it, yeah it's it's another level beyond that yeah it gives you a, a much deeper look into your why as we call it like why are you yes. doing yes. And exactly. uh, absolutely the and, why uh, in to stick with yeah. it yes. and i think a, a lot of clinicians rush they can't wait to give advice and tell you what to do before you've decided whether you're even interested. And it's the same in public speaking or many things. You have to hook people into thinking, now that's interesting, or you know that's the thing I'd like to do. You've got to hook them before you start suggesting they give up their treasured sugar or bread or whatever. So work in the, in the hooking department at the beginning. Yeah, they have to feel it's worth it, you know? Yes. What are you going to get out of this? And when you really dig deep into it, yeah, that's much more motivating than just, well, I would want to lose some weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely essential that first that first stage, because it is. There will be times when it's tough, as we all know, you know, and there will be times when when people struggle or they're having cravings or you know the people around are tempting them or you know the environment which we live in. So um, they they will need some real motivation to to carry on yeah so talk to me more about your groups and just kind of some of the results that you've seen 
Mm. Oh, I'd love to do that. So <laughs> actually, it's improving all the time. So at the moment, we've got 97 people into drug-free type 2 diabetes remission. So they've got a normal blood sugar and they're not using drugs. And in fact, of all the people who, who come to us now with diabetes, 52% will achieve a normal blood sugar and off medication. And it it's improving uh, the, the statistics year on year because we keep very careful records of what we do and publish them as well. Um, the statistics are improving all the time. And, and this is against a backdrop of saving £50,000 on, and it's drugs for diabetes alone. Yeah. That's £50,000 on drugs for diabetes alone. So it's interesting when we say there's no money for things, we are actually spending... In the UK, we spend a billion a year on drugs for diabetes, and I'm sure the states, I expect you're ahead of us on that. And so mm -hmm. it's funny, there isn't money to help people in one way, but you're all paying for insurance and other things, so you are spending a lot of money on the, on the drugs. And this, in a way, uh, leads us to how we thought more about addiction, because we care so much about the results. So we're always fascinated by either success, but we're equally fascinated by failure. So Jen has taught me, instead of seeing patients as failed, that's not, they're a puzzle. I see them now as an interesting puzzle. So I'm not negative about somebody whose results have deteriorated, but I am genuinely interested. And really, I began to see that many of the behaviors along people who do so well, have wonderful results, and then they seem to throw it all away and come back heavy. And they, you know, that one, one month they're saying, I feel terrific, I've lost loads of weight and they're off medication. And then you weigh them three months later and they, they've gained so much weight. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? It's really, really odd because people are almost self-harming sometimes where they, they say, this is it. I'm never, I'm never changing. Low carb has solved me. This is brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Owen. And then I, I see them again and I think, what mm. has happened? Mm. And I, I realized I'd seen this kind of behavior before. I'd seen it in uh, people with smoking. So people who smoke, you know, only 10%, no matter what you do, only about 10% can give up year on year. And I'd also seen it with alcohol. And I began to think um, about, was this addiction that we were seeing? And of course, I'm very lucky because I'm married to a consultant psychologist and uh, addiction is the absolutely the, the area that a psychologist would be interested in. So I think I'm going to let Jen talk about addiction now. <laughs> yeah. And what's kind of funny is that, yes, I've been a psychologist since 1990. <laughs> and yet it, it took me till probably only the last five years to work out that I personally had a food addiction. <laughs> it takes you a while to kind of uh, think these things through. Um, and that, that was a really good explanation for my lifelong struggles with um, putting weight on, taking it off, you know, kind of craving foods and particularly sugar and carbohydrate and so on. Um, so yeah, so as time went on, we could see that in, in other patients and I could see it in myself. And I think it was probably something from Bitten that I saw originally and sort of saw this idea of, because of course there isn't, you know, I've trained, trained psychologists, so uh, I knew about addiction, but there, there isn't, there isn't a category of food addiction yet it doesn't it doesn't exist so of course we've never trained in that because it they don't they trained you to deal with the diagnoses that that were um in the in the you know that were categorized and were in the research um so it's it's an idea that i came across you know probably in the last five or six years and then have just got increasingly interested in really and obviously did fitness training and um just looking into it more and more but it does just seem to explain why a proportion of people just do really well with with advice and uh, information and low carbon they go off and do it and they 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 get it and they carry on doing it um but then there's another proportion of people who 
who really struggle or can do it for a while, but um, really struggle to, to do it long term uh, and have these graphs. We see these graphs for their blood sugars, but also their weight that, you know, they do really well and then they do really badly and then they do really well. And, that, you know, they themselves are kind of recognising that it is more, more of an addiction problem. So we've been, you know, talking more about it, haven't we, in the groups and um, obviously thinking thinking about it more and looking, I've been looking into the research and wrote the little book and so on. So I'm sure it's something that, that will continue to develop in the work that we do. I was so surprised how obviously I've known Jen since she was about 16 or 17 years old and I've watched her weight go up and down, really has. And I didn't spot the addiction side either and I live with her and yet there was all sorts of it was pretty when you look now yeah it's I was mad as there was a collusion between us because I saw her uh, a particular thing I remember is that she'd say she was going to go on a diet uh, but in the lead up to a diet she kind of panicked and ate more and more <laughs> and more and she was doing tray bakes the kids loved it <laughs> Kids loved it because loved suddenly it. there was puddings and stuff and, you know, and I think, and by the time she came to the diet, she'd often weigh kilos more Yeah. and she kind of panicked and I, did, I just couldn't understand it because I used to just, if I went on a diet, I'd do it that day. Yeah. I'd get off holiday and I'd just stop get, eating. I never could do that. <laughs> and Jenny, could this messing about could go on for weeks and weeks. She seemed to have to screw herself up to this. And so there was that. And then... There was terrific use of sweetness. I never understood. She was constantly sweeteners into this, sweeteners in that, chewing gum all over the place. Uh, and now it all, once you see a thing, it's weird. Yeah. Because it, it so obviously fits. And that really helps. It really helps, I think, to have that, you know, that diagnosis, if you like, or that model. You know, once you kind of go, oh, yes, that really fits. And that, you know, that's also partly why I wrote the book, because I don't think it, although it's talked about more now, isn't it? It's not still not talked about enough. And I think if there are other people who have this struggle, who can, you know, maybe hear like your podcast or, you know, they can see the Fork in the Road book and they can go, oh, yes, actually, that's me. You know, try the coat on and it, it really fits. It kind of fits with what's gone on in the past and, um all the different experiences that I've had because then I think that that gives you again some hope that there's a different way you know there is this fork in the road that you can take there's a there's a there's that that hope that actually now you've got this understanding you can bring that understanding to bear on your experience and make some different choices um and you understand the the biology of it and and that it's not your fault and that makes I think that's a really powerful thing for people um that they can then take a different path and even though it's hard you know there's other people also walking that path and if you continue on the path you know that's you're going to get there i think it, it's at least valuable to give people a model they can understand because i've dealt with people who have cried with relief when i've said do you think you could be a sugar or a carb addict because, of course, until that point, their model for what was wrong with them was that they were in some way mad. Because they look like they, they feel so they can be intelligent people mm. and yet they behave in such an irrational way that the people around them and for themselves, it's so bad for their self-esteem because for years and years they do what seems like stupid stuff and they don't even understand it. But it can be a great relief to think that model fits me. Yeah. And with it comes the, the hope of, well, and there's a way you can go into it. So I, I it, it's amazing that some people are so relieved when I say to them, well, you, you know, your weight's bounced up and down all these years now. And I've seen you at 12 stone and I've seen you at 15 and going up and down. Do you, you know, do you think there could be addiction as part of your relationship with food is almost addictive? And they very often know perfectly well that they're relieved because they say definitely. Mm. And in my case, it's bread, but I, you know, it sounds so stupid to say this. And of course, in a world where, so we accept, don't we, that there's nicotine addiction and we expect, we accept gambling addiction. 
but hardly any doctors accept food addiction. And so patients, then they're so isolated because yeah. how can you go to a doctor and say, I'm a food addict because they doctors tell you that doesn't exist. Well, there's nowhere. So cruel. There's no services for yeah. people to what even if the doctor was sympathetic and, and said, yeah, your behavior does look like a digit, there's nowhere to refer no. them. There's no services. So that's the, that's in a way the next challenge. It is. is. Um, so, um, so as part of being really interested in all this, of course, as, as a psychologist, it, it's, it's kind of, um, you, you're trained in an academic way to look at what already exists in the literature, um, and you know to use that as your starting point um so i've been really interested to do uh some of that over the last year uh, and look what what the evidence is and you know how we might get this uh this diagnosis recognized but also what's the evidence in terms of how we help people and what's been really interesting is that um there does seem there is a lot of evidence about uh, sugar and pr processed foods and their effect effect on the brain, and there's been some really good research into that. And we've you know we found um, absolutely loads of uh, references on that. Um, but what there hasn't been, and that's probably because it isn't a recognised diagnosis, there hasn't been uh, research on what works to help people improve improve um, food addiction. Uh, symptoms so what what treatments might work um so that's definitely an area we, we need to to work on um you know to take all the best practice there's lots of fantastic clinicians in the in the area like like bitten and um you know there's lots of lots of people in the states now lots of people trained by bitten who are helping people but what we need to do is um look at the evidence you know get to keep the data for that Just exactly like david and i have done really which is to to sh to demonstrate absolutely that where you advise people a low carb a ketogenic diet which seems to me you know so logical because if we're saying there's lots of evidence that sugar and grains and ultra processed foods do act on the brain in the same way as drugs and alcohol and in the same areas as drugs and alcohol then obviously those are the substances that you would need to be abstinent from take out of the diet um, to see an improvement in addic addiction symptoms. So we need to show that where that advice is given and followed, um, you know, what is it that happens to people's food addiction symptoms? So that's, that's my, that's my next big campaign. Yeah. <laughs> I have a slightly more pragmatic approach. So I, I'd start with uh, looking after people, drug addicts, uh, alcoholics and um, people trying to give up cigarette smoking and actually we've already learned some quite useful tips on how to help people with addiction so you know an alcoholic you you wouldn't say a small glass of whiskey every night was a good idea so clearly if you are a sugar addict then a small amount of moderation is the last thing you're able to cope with and so I brought that from established medicine because yeah. I'd learned uh, alcoholics, people with an alcohol problem are always fascinated and they'd love this idea of controlled drinking. It doesn't work. It absolutely does not work. And the same really is if your problem is biscuits, then you absolutely need to stop those biscuits. Or if it's smoking, you know, a half cigarette is never a half cigarette, uh, really. And so I, I think there are some things we can learn on how we treat other addictions. Mm. Yeah. And really, there's only abstinence or substitution. So that, of course, we do use methadone sometimes for the heroin addicts. But that substitution, you have to inexorably cut it back or you'll end up with another addiction instead. So it is possible to transfer. So I've told the story before how I had to transfer from biscuits gradually to oat cakes, gradually to almonds, gradually to stopping snacking because I couldn't give up biscuits because it was part of how I coped with being a doctor. Whereas Jen did cold turkey, but substitution uh, can work. So that's another way that I have a sort of practical way of thinking, well, what, how have I actually helped people with addiction in the past? And I actually find it's quite similar often to how Jen would advise anyway.
Yeah. I just feel like this is so important. I'm just agreeing a hundred percent on that. We do need to get that med medical diagnosis recognized just so that people can get the help that they need. Cause again, I was someone that knew I struggled, but everywhere I turned, it was like, yeah, there's no such thing. So just try moderation. You know, I, I got treatment for binge eating disorder, thinking that was the issue. And it's just really spent so much unnecessary money and years and grief really of trying, because I wanted, I was interested and motivated to help myself. And that's where I just feel so much for other people like that, that just can't get the help they need. They want it, but they're not being told that, you know, even just saying, yes, it sounds like you might be addicted to food and you're having people cry with relief because sometimes just getting that diagnosis is just part one of healing that problem and getting help around it. But to be told, no, it's all in your mind. There's no such thing. That really, like we're talking about hope, but that just takes away any hope that you might have. But when you're listening to other people's stories and you're like, wow, that sounds you know, hearing you talk about Jen sounds exactly like me. <laughs> and that's how we know that there is such a thing as, you know, food addiction from all these people's stories. And then the hope is that if we can overcome it, so can anybody. You exactly. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. If we can, if we can come back from, uh, <laughs> from some of those kinds of behaviors, you know, absolutely anybody can. And that's why, that's why I love your podcast, because it's people's stories, and people can listen and they, you know, they can hear the, the hope of, of other people's stories, I think is, is so, so powerful. I'm curious, just going back to, I'm just curious when you were talking about how some of the people that you, you know, go through your program of the low carb diet do really well, you know, and they just thrive. And then you have those people that do well for a little bit, but then after a few months, you know, gain the weight, you know, go off the wagon, gain the weight back. Do you have an idea of about like how frequently that happens, like a percentage of people? I'm just curious. Probably about a third, as, as a guess, okay. about a third. Um, and it peaks at various times. So Christmas is an absolute disaster. And, uh, <laughs> I've really learned to give people an appointment, come and see me in January. Yeah. Uh, because if I don't catch them quickly, if I don't offer support, then we can be a long time catching up. Yeah. Or oh, we talk, we always talk in the November and December groups. Christmas is coming. What are you going to do? How are you going to survive it? You know, come on. We know this is a major challenge. And, you know, I mean, it still is, it still is for us, isn't it? We yeah. still have to really well, it, be careful what, what we plan. Yeah. And It brings me to a point I wanted to make. I, um, it's about how bad people feel when they fail. Because yeah. a lot of people listening, they may not be at the best point in their lives. And in fact, you can be very sad with yourself and think, well, you know, it's great for Jen Unwin to, you know, she's doing all right. Mm -hmm. And I, w one of the things that Jen has taught me is about how to help people with failure. Yeah. And the first thing is to be kind to yourself and, and don't beat yourself up. Having said that, it's if we took the idea of Christmas, it's, well, so you gained weight this Christmas. How will you deal with Christmas next year? How would you do it? What lessons have we learned? Because all of us, we get older, so we all learn stuff and we learn things from our mistakes and we do things differently. And if you're doing the same thing every time, you won't learn. But, you know, Christmas doesn't have to be a disaster. Could you do it differently? And I try and channel, rather than people feel um, a failure, I think, well, now let's look at critically at Christmas. Where did it go wrong? Um, I love that. Just breaking it down in January. Yeah. Where did I go wrong? Oh, and you know, sometimes it's the, it's the chocolate. They say, oh, well, I buy, I buy chocolates for the tree for the grandchildren. And then I go, well, who actually ate them? <laughs> and, and they say, yes, but you can't have grandchildren without giving them food and well, i say you can we do well <laughs> you know you maybe you love them more than anything so if you love them so much is that a really good thing for children that you love yeah. and they never thought like that because the whole world is full of treats and all the rest of it so i just wanted to talk a bit about yeah. failure and how within it 
Um, my, we're, my, we're all learning yeah, year, we do. year on year. You Jenna, know? We're learning we're still, compared we're still to last year. Nine years later. No, in fact, this was the, I even put it on Twitter because I was so proud of myself. Uh, this was the first Christmas ever when I didn't put, actually put on some weight um, the way that we did it and the way that I managed it this year. So that was like a kind of Christmas it was, miracle. It was. <laughs> well, and you, yeah. you, you oh. didn't drink either, which was and part I, of I, it. You part managed a Christmas that, without um, any alcohol at all, which part, I think... Part of it is that I've uh, gone completely teetotal now, and that seems to have really... That does really help, actually. Um, well, you know, some people need to do that. And uh, I, I was never a big drinker, but I think it just... Um, it just makes cravings worse. It just makes you more likely to make stupid decisions, and I don't, I don't miss it, so it's fine. And it kind of evolves, you know. I feel like I've learned that even in just the three years I've been doing this, um, it's just constant kind of experimentation of what works, what doesn't work. And any time that I'm starting to feel like I'm eating things not like unable to eat in moderation, I look at it again, like, well, maybe that has to go, whether that be dairy or grains or alcohol. Or like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, I don't see it now those, if, I think if you'd said to me when I started out, those were all the things that I'd eventually give up, I'd have thought, oh, life's not worth living. But actually, um, the freedom that comes with being able to quit those things and not have the cravings absolutely makes life worth much, <laughs> much more so living. Much better, yes, so much better without those. Because yeah. although it seems restrictive, like to us, it's actually freedom. Yeah. So it's freedom to sort of eat what you eat and get on with your life instead of spending 90% of the time cogitating about what you ate and didn't eat and will you gonna eat later and ate too much and put too much weight on and, and, and those sorts of programs that you sort of constantly running if you're a food addict that sort of take the joy out of the rest of your life. Um, it, it's it's 100% worth it. I think a, a useful point is learning to tell the difference between healthy enjoyment of food and unhealthy enjoyment of food so that for most people, uh, let's say a steak with broccoli and butter is a reasonably healthy thing and they enjoy that. But it's quite different would be a relationship with say cake or pudding or lasagna or something where they're never full and they want more and more and they've never finished. And I, I think some people over time can begin to tell the difference between a healthy enjoyment of, an, of a healthy meal and something that's more sinister than that. And I think Jen's got a lot better at sorting out and spotting mm. the difference between those two things and the results, she, I would say she's much happier. Yeah, and I would but, like to say, you know, you can still enjoy your food. I still yeah. love eating. I take a lot of pleasure in eating my foods. And it's even more pleasurable because I don't have a food hanger hangover afterwards or those negative thoughts criticizing myself. Oh, you did it again, you know, how, you know. Yeah, and I love cooking. I always did love cooking. I've just had to sort of adapt it now so that the the, the kinds of things that, I, that I'm cooking. No, I, I mean, yeah, it's still the highlight of the day, <laughs> one of them. But yeah, in, in just in a better way, really, yeah. And some really great recipes in your book, you know, again, going back to a fork in the road, highly recommend that. It's available on Amazon. I'll make sure I link it here. And tell us about, you know, you write it and all the profits go. So the Public Health Collaboration, which is a UK charity promoting good public health um, advice. And um, we hopefully, well, we're working on um, a sister a website, which will have, it's going to be called, hopefully, Food Addiction Resources. Uh, .org, and it's going to have information for professionals, but uh, mainly for members of the public where they can just go and kind of look up information about, about food addiction. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a work in progress with the PHC. So the PHC, it's a charity that we helped set up a few years ago. I think it was about 16 um, all healthcare professionals who felt that the advice given to the public was poor and that it wasn't leading to better health. And we were all fed up in different ways from our own uh, specialities. Mm. So we started off running conferences 
and we wanted a website that stores good In evidence. Fact, the, the online conference is coming up. People are interested. Oh, we'll, our conference we'll, we'll is We'll both be up. speaking as well as some other really okay. good speakers. And it's May. It's going to be online this year, May the 8th and 9th. So people can uh, log in. And I think, I don't think there's a set price. I think you just donate what you think, the, the, you know, the content that you've heard has, has been worth to you. So it should be a really good conference. Over Amazing. That. Yeah. yeah, give me that website. I'll link that below as well, because we're yeah. almost out of time. So I want to just leave with maybe is there anything else that you both want to kind of share with us that we didn't get to today that you wanted to say? So I just wanted to share as well that if people are um, interested, I have a regular clubhouse room, which is 6 p.m. on a Wednesday night. It's tonight. Um, if you've got an Apple phone, you can get into Clubhouse. You can pry. if you if you go on the Facebook group, uh, Bitten's Facebook group, Sugar Bomb in Your Brain, and sign up there. You'll you'll always see the notifications. And um, it's Anna Fruling, myself, Dave Dave Avram Wolf is often there. Judy Wolf's often there, and we just have chat about a different topic every week. People can come and get support. It's a really nice. That's a really nice group. And that's so. 6 p.m. your time, right? PM our time. Okay, yeah. So I, I keep meaning I'm on Clubhouse just to join and it has the timing has not worked out for me yet. But yeah, I would love to be a part of that. So yeah. Fab. And I just want to end with a few sort of hopeful things. One of the great um, side effects of, of keeping lots of data is we've we're able to find out how well people are doing. And one of the greatest things is we've discovered that whether you're a young person or an old person, they do just as well. The old people lose weight just like the young ones. The oldest person I've got is 92 years old. Wow. And that person has put their diabetes into remission, and that is amazing. And I just I love this idea that old and young can do well, mm. and they do equally well. In fact, a lot of older people know how to cook, and that's that's great. And previously, I wouldn't have bothered with older people. Wasn't I a horrible person? And now I, <laughs> Now I am an older person, so I have a different perspective. So I, that's my thing that um, there's hope for young people, but it's never too late. And I've, yeah. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you with an 85 year old who was type two diabetic on insulin. He's been off insulin for two years, off all his medication for blood pressure and everything. And he's joined a gym. He's lifting weights, and he's 85. And he looks fabulous. He's lost so much weight. He looks amazing. And I think if he can do it, so can a lot of other people. So that's my final message of hope. Oh, and low carb GP on Twitter, finally. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, it's never, ever too late. So that's so inspiring. And thank you both for all that you're doing in this world. And the data, I just wanted to say that you are collecting, I think is going to be so important and vital in getting that medical diagnosis. So I personally am so grateful for the work that you're doing, because I think it's going to make a huge difference. And we're really close, I think, to getting to that point where it is recognized as a diagnosis. And we're doing more research on how to help people get better. So thank you both so much. Thank, thank you. you. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.